In case it doesn't become immediately obvious when you start listening to this, this was recorded several months ago and it's just getting uploaded now. Sorry, but uh, enjoy. This is the Grey Zone. Al forgot to get the theme music. The French Open is underway and Virginia just won the NCAAs. Here we go. Ta-ta, Kentucky? <laughs> well start. done. Well done. I didn't think we'd get worse than last week, but we did it. I know. Yeah. Well, go. What were you saying? As usual, it's all it's all downhill from here. <laughs> hey, I'll just stay at the start. We've mentioned this at the start of a few pods. If you don't know who we are, you shouldn't. Uh, but in one of the first episodes, there's a quick bio on Zachy and a quick bio on myself. Um, or you can check that info out at thegrayzone.co for more info on who we are. And I'll just, I'll start this one the way we've started other ones, Zach. We have none of the answers. We just have a lot of questions. So That's if you're right. looking for answers, if you came to this podcast looking for answers, move along, pal. <laughs> you got questions? Um, yeah, I got one for you. So what are your thoughts in general about... I guess young athletes that say under the age of twelve were developing developing athletes, um, as it relates to kind of the general heights they should play at, and I can be more specific if you'd like. But if I if I just start this off very broadly like that, I'm curious your general thoughts. I mean, I'll completely not answer your question, but I just as you say that I like. Um... One thing, one thing that I think about and that maybe doesn't get discussed enough in coaching is like, I think tennis coaching tennis isn't one job. It's like, there's a, it's a whole bunch of jobs. And what I mean by that, of course, there's different roles and responsibilities, but it just gets me because when you talk about these questions or when you bring up these questions, it reinforces to me uh, or reminds me of the fact that it, it reminds me of how long it's been since I uh, spent time really developing an under 10 or an under 12 player every now and then I, I work and help out with them, but it, it's been a while since I've really developed one a few years anyway. And, you know, I was talking with someone the other day, like they're asking me if I'd ever want to be a college coach in the States. And I was saying like, it's a completely different job. It's a completely yeah. different type of coaching. Um, and just like, I think coaching on tour is completely different than coaching an under 16 player. And I think coaching an under 16 player is completely different than coaching an under 10. Like I think, yep. There are a handful of similarities, but I think for the most part, they are really entirely different uh, jobs. Um, and I just yep. have to remind, I, the, the, all I'm getting at is I remind myself of that because having done, you know, having stepped into a couple different roles where my responsibilities and my day-to-day activities <laughs> changed, um, I, I realize, you know, how how different they are and how easy it is to think that what's true for your context applies to other contexts. So I have to catch myself when I think of like, what would I do with an under 10 or an under 12? Because then I remind myself, like, it's been a while since I've done that. And what I'm doing right now with 16, 17 year olds isn't necessarily going to uh, work with an under 10. And it's easy for me to say, oh yeah, this is what I would do. But yeah, it's it's a very different animal. Anyway, to, to, to go into your question, I would, all I would say off the top of my head is they should be able to manipulate the height of the ball. They should be able to play um they should be able to, to play a, a straight trajectory ball they should be able to play an, an arc trajectory ball they should be able to play a loop trajectory ball um whenever they want yeah what what do you find is the most common height that i guess under 10s tend to play at when they compete well yeah certainly in the loop maybe if they're good they play with an arc 
yeah. for the, I mean, for I, it's, I don't even know if these are established terms, but for, for, for people listening, my, my idea of that is like a, uh, a, a, an arc trajectory would be, you know, uh, you know, six feet over the net type of thing, four to six feet over the net with a bit of an arc, whereas a loop would be really much, much higher than that. 10, 12 more feet over the net, uh, more of an up down trajectory. Yeah. Do you find as, um, if I were to make the statement that I guess as a player's level increases or the, I guess the level they compete at increases the, and as the speed increases, the the general height of the ball tends to come down a bit. So, do you think there'd be a correlation between level and the height of the ball that's sent? At an under ten, at an under twelve level, yeah. Yeah, and sorry, in a rally phase, I should be specific as well, like in in a uh-huh. rally phase. Then, yeah, I would agree. I mean, of course, like, um, yeah, I think when you're older, it's a different story. But I mm-hmm. think I think at under twelve, yeah, I think like lower level players play higher and higher. Um, yeah. just because it's the easiest and slowest way to get the ball deep. Yeah. But then as players get better, they can hit harder and, and control the ball more. And so they, they lower the ball because that does more damage. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, we've said before that the tactic influences all of this, right? So depending on the phase of play that you're in, this could influence a lot of stuff. But um, when I was coaching a lot more under 12 stuff, I was a really big believer in lots of height and lots of shape and lots of balls that had the ability to get out of an opponent's strike zone, um, generally through playing above somebody's shoulder. And I think that can be very, very effective at a certain level. And as I've started to coach, and kind of as you alluded to, as I've started to coach players at uh, older age groups and stuff, I just think the height stuff can change a lot, especially indoors. And so we were doing this theme recently, which is sort of a countering theme and receiving balls that are sent at a really fast pace and being able to... um, redirect or maintain that pace and i found so much of that theme and was just centered around i guess sending balls that are going through the first window yeah um and so you mentioned at the start it's like well all of these coaching roles are different from a u12 coach to under 16 coach to whatever it might be and as much as they're all different they're all connected in a sense where like a really good under 12 coach has to know what skills under 14 has to have and what what under 16 Mm -hmm. has to have and so on and so forth right so when in doing this theme i think my opinion of what I would do if I was in a situation where I went back and coached to under 10 or under 12, um, I think it would be very different now than how I used to do it. And I think one of the big things that would be different is I, I would really, really try to have players that have incredibly back to front, back to front or straight pass to the racket um, with very long hitting zones that consistently have the ability to play balls through the first window. And I'm not saying that would be, that would lead to them being under 12 national champions. But I, I just think as the speed of the ball increases a lot, I think they would have the ability to do a lot more things at a, at a higher level. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think those are the sorts of, um, I think those are the sorts of discussions that are work at, worth having, even if you don't come to a conclusion, but just to to solidify, you know, what it is that you do and why it is that you do those sorts of things. I would say that that's pretty close to the way I used to coach. Mm-hmm. Um and very close philosophically as well to to the why. I mean, I used to believe that that contr- the height was the most important ball control, um, because most yeah. of the time when people miss long, it's because they hit too high. Sometimes it's because there's not enough spin. It's never because you yeah. hit too hard, right? Yeah. But most of the time, when people hit long, it's because they hit too high. And then when people attack and they miss, it's because they it's almost it's very often because they miss in the net. And so it's like or or long, but if it's long, it's because it's too high once again because the ball's flat. And so it's like. You know, I had this I had this sort of theory that if you could control the height really well all the time, 
then it was very difficult to miss. Um, now, is it the most important ball control? I think it's hard to say that for sure, because of course, direction and whatnot, super important, but, and, and right. all the others, but, um, and, but then I also was a big, big believer and believer is the wrong word, but I put a lot of emphasis when I was working with U10s and U12s on, on uh, extension, you know, getting, you know, getting, getting the arm and the racket through the ball, having a really long hitting zone. Um, because as I, as I explain, explained then, and still explain to players, you know, having good extension through the ball, not only helps you control the height better, it also helps you control the direction better and it helps you hit harder. So it's like, it's one of the most important things you can do when we talk about technique. So, um, so I think like if you put that emphasis on, on controlling the height and that then leads or, or encourages, encourages players to, to have a long, a long hitting zone and good extension, then I think that's ultimately a good thing. Now, the flip side of it is when you look at, when you look at really, successful players as they graduate to an international and a professional level there's a couple of things you see one is their balls are extremely heavy which mm-hmm. means lots generally speaking lots of spin you know be able to they're able to hit extremely hard but still maintain some shape on the ball they're also accelerating very quickly which you might be discouraged to do if you're trying to guide the ball through a certain window so there are potential downsides to that approach but yeah. There's downsides to every approach. Yeah. No, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I think I think part of this as well is I've, I've had some experiences with players who have, when they were younger, played with a tremendous amount of height. And I, I found sometimes it's a more difficult transition to get a player to lower the trajectory of their ball than it is to get a player that plays low um, to sort of increase the trajectory or increase the spin of the ball. Because really, like all it is is like, I guess, the internal ratio in of forehand specifically would just be like the internal rotation of a forearm to help create some some safety of it right and then some slight change of the path to help create the trajectory that's a little bit higher and i guess feel like that's that's easier to add into a to a player i guess later than it than it might be um i guess alternatively why do you think that is i don't know i think Okay, well, one thing I'll preface, preface by saying as well is like there are incredible men of incredible forehands on tour, incredible men of incredible on tour that um, are really, really glancing um, and that don't have long hitting zones and they're still very, very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that in mind, I just, I don't know, I just, I just think, or I think I've come to learn that it's like, no, you know, to be honest, I, I couldn't tell you why I think that is. It's just, it's just my experience specifically with people on the forehand side that if they've played very glancing and high for a large part of their career, it just seems like it's a, a tougher change to get them to play straighter. Mm. Um, and that's anecdotal. There's no evidence behind that. That's my own lived experience um, mm-hmm. in the world of playing on very fast indoor indoor bubbles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. And I mean, do you, what do you think of, like, what if you took an under 10 and said, okay, we're going to spend, I mean, this is really oversimplified, but we've got a 60 minute, you know, private lesson. We're going to spend half that time focusing on field, you know, different situations where you have to really flatten out the ball and come through it and level off the trajectory. And we're going to spend the other 30 minutes uh, playing short angles and hi- heavy spinny balls and top spin lobs and like lifting the ball and playing with lots of spin. What could you, could you develop those skills simultaneously? 100%. Yeah. 100% you could. Yeah. I guess the the competitive aspect always okay. I guess 
to simplify this, how many players on tour don't have the ability to lift a ball versus how many players on tour have a tough time sending a ball that's penetrating and going through the court quickly? And so maybe I should have gone with that. And maybe that, again, that's like, it's not uh, like, actually, you know, there is probably somewhere who had someone somewhere who has that data. But even a guy like Medvedev, who tends to play maybe lower than most pros and flatter than most pros, he still has lots of times in which he increases the shape, the shape of the ball to, to do whatever, whatever might be tactically desired. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think oftentimes too, there's lots of Spanish players or, or I guess Argentine South American players that are really, really good at sending balls that are heavy and rising. But when it comes to them, then changing the trajectory of their ball to take away more time or to hurt a, an opponent more, I feel like that's, um, I guess, more common or less common, I should say, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm not I'm not convinced by your argument about, like, on tour, which players have more difficulty with this and that. Uh, you might be right, but it's just, it, uh, I, I haven't seen that trend necessarily. Um, mm. cause I think well, but if I don't of... say anything with, with, with data, you shouldn't be convinced of anything that I say. Right. So that's <laughs> anybody listening at the same thing, you know? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I just, I just think there's plenty of players who also struggle to hit super heavy, uh, with spin. Cause I think that's, I guess that's where I'm coming from. I'm not coming from the perspective of, oh yeah, they need to be able to hit a, a good short angle or a good pop spin lob. I'm coming mm. the, from the perspective of they're going to need to be able to hit a really heavy rally ball. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I think what I would say is like, I think you, de- you know, you develop your, your, your U10s, your U12s, however you want to. And there's probably, and not probably, there's definitely people out there who have more experience than me and, and have a more informed philosophy in that regard. But for now, I'll say is, is you develop them however you want to. And, but at the same time, take into account what their natural tendencies are, what their environment has shaped in terms of their skill set, and then constantly try to balance that or compensate for that, right? We both coach in cold countries. You're in Canada, I'm in Sweden. Our players play on indoor, fast indoor hard courts very often, right? Mm-hmm. And so we know that our players are probably going to tend to have, uh, especially in Sweden, but but still in Canada as well, our players are going to tend to have flatter, more compact, lower trajectories, more compact strokes, lower trajectories, right? Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You need to play that way. That they they play that way because that's what works on fast indoor hard courts, and that yep. is a surface that plenty of plenty of tennis is played on around the world. Yeah. But you do then have to spend time counteracting that, compensating for that, right? And developing all the the sort of clay specific skills and developing those other feelings and those other trajectories. I mean, I'll tell a story, and this is like the the lowest form of evidence this is some real anecdotal hearsay type stuff so also not data driven but i was at uh when i was in spain once i was watching this uh, i i spent a couple days i'm gonna i'm gonna be intentionally vague here but spent a couple days uh or or more than that but several days at a spanish academy and um observed once again really anecdotal evidence but from what i saw all of their best players were eastern european and Mm -hmm. You can sit there and say, oh, yeah, Eastern Europeans are good, but so are Spaniards, of course. Um, right. And what, what what I took away from it was that the Eastern Europeans had learned to play aggressive, fast, flat, hardcore tennis in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And then they had come to the Spanish Academy and learned to grind and play with spin and construct a point. Mm-hmm. And the result of that was they ended up being very well-rounded. 
Right. Whereas the players who had only been in that sort of Spanish system, and of course, I, that's that's already a, a false statement to suggest that there's one Spanish system or to suggest that it's it's flawed. But right. had only been in this sort of grind, grind, grind system, mm-hmm. ended up with no weapons. Yeah. There, there are players there whose forehands can't crack an egg and they can't flatten the ball out like you're describing and they can't add any pace on their shot. They're just using their arm. And it's like, all right, this is this isn't working. So so you uh, that for me was a real uh, interesting observation, whether or not it's true, I can't say. But that for me was a real interesting observation to see like, OK, this player you know, came in or could have come in with these skills and then they 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 balanced out their game by adding these other uh, this other skill set. Yeah. And I think when you uh, said well, well-rounded was the big thing that s- stood out to me there, right? We're going back to mm. kind of my original statement is like to make, to make the players that I, okay, the under 12 players that I might potentially work with in the future more well-rounded. I feel like at those ages, I should be more focused than I historically have been on sending trajectories that are lower with straighter paths, you know, right. and still like, as you summed up, it's like the player has to be able to do everything, you know? Um, yeah, but this is also like this, what we're talking about here, this is not like a, a straight science of the way that things should be done ever. Right. It's like one coach will decide to do it a certain way and one coach will decide to do it another way. And in my own experience, it's like, I've had more success. I've, I've had players who have developed skills to play higher, um, and more shapely easier than I've had success. Um, creating players that can send very forcing, forcing balls to the first window when it's the appropriate time to do so. Um, and so I think all of that feedback, uh, I think influences like the next set of players that I work with. And then I'm sure yeah. after that set of players, it's like, well, maybe my philosophy changes again a little bit based on, um, on what I think it is, but to wrap up, I guess this segment. Yeah. I think your anecdotal story is like, yeah, it speaks volumes, it speaks volumes for sure. No, and I, I, but I think what you're saying makes sense. And I also, um, you know, when you talk about next generations of players, that's the other thing too, is like circumstances change, right? Mm-hmm. You might have four under tens and they're all playing super spinny, super grindy. And that could be because just the way they are. It yeah. could be because of the way they were taught. Um, yeah. And it could be because of the surface you're on. It could be they have, you know, uh, the competitive environment, the competitive structure, the types of tournaments, the pressure that's on them. It could be yeah. that on Saturdays, they go do this match play drill thing. And then they work on that. Like, could mm-hmm. be any number of things. And then the next generation you coach could end up being completely different. Yeah. Uh, it could also be stature, of course, right? Kids tiny and they decide, okay, you know, I, I, I can barely get the ball over the net. How am I going to attack? I might as well just play high and high and deep and grind it out. So, I mean, there's, there's a million factors at play. And I think a, a good coach, as we know, will, will adapt to the, to the circumstances. Yeah. Um, Segwaying on, on that, but similar. You've talked a lot about, I guess, rhythm and timing being such a, a massive component of how you view technical development. Is that fair mm-hmm. to say? Oh, yeah. Um, one of the the other components to do with, I guess, players playing potentially lower with, with straighter paths is, I guess, find they, they potentially develop easier timing skills um, having, having those trajectories and those, I guess, swing paths. And again, when we look at like, well, what skills is a player going to need when they're on the tour? It's like, well, being able to time balls is probably one of the most important skills uh, in a lot of situations, and in particular as it relates to return of serve. Um, and so that's just something that I was that came to mind as you and I were having this discussion of like, well, what, what skill are they going to need later, and how else how else can I potentially sell the point of how important I think it is at younger levels to to be developing 
I guess they'll swing past in, in the shape. Yeah, and, and this is also probably a great example of of going of, of why you shouldn't. I mean, uh, no one listens to this. Of why you saw. So I don't have to be careful. Of why you shouldn't listen to like, you know, ITF or tour coaches or whatever when they talk about U10 development. Because I think I, I now that I actually think about it, I mean, I think in a sense uh, I made a mistake, or at the very least, you could misinterpret what I said. But I mean, because I think yeah, if you're going around working with U10s and 12s and and He's saying, oh yeah, they have to be able to play with spin. They have to be able to play with shape. And and as a result of that, they're developing crappy technique. Then of course that's a bad thing, right? Right. And that's the thing, is it's it's gonna be difficult for or there is a very real risk, let's put it that way, that those kids, if told play with some shape, play with lots of spin, hit a heavy ball, are then gonna end up either having extreme grips or their swing paths are gonna be very low to high, or they're just gonna be swinging with their arm. And so, and that is a bad thing, right? right? We know it's good, of course, to be able to come through the ball and extend. Even when you watch players, once again, when you watch players hit extremely heavy, they're still mm-hmm. coming forwards through the ball. They still have a back to front yeah. trajectory. Of course, it's on an it's on an, an on an incline, but it's still yeah. back to front. And Nadal's no exception to that, by the way. 100%. So, like, yeah. um, so you know, until they have the physical capacity, and 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 that's strength that's coordination that's range of motion to hit heavy with good technique because then you need to be able to drive from the legs you need to have uh you need to have like uh, separation angles and and you know you need to have a multi-segmented swing you need to be able to use your wrist you able to coordinate all the all the the parts of the body so like you need to have a lot of like acceleration so like until they can do that then it makes more sense to go well no let's hit through the ball let's have like you said clean timing let's let's uh let's have good extension and then that might require then hitting a little bit flatter and a little bit lower mm, um yeah. so you, you all that to say that you're probably right <laughs> no you mean you clean clean that up well yeah um so this this segue this will this next topic that i'm going to throw at you i guess you're going to segue back to the first topic that we had today but um obviously you're familiar with uh, craig o'shaughnessy who i think has come up on this pod a few times yeah. Can you, if for those who are unfamiliar with Craig, do you want to let them know like what, what, how kind of Craig has made a career or what Craig has made a career doing and then I guess pumping out? Yeah. Craig O'Shaughnessy is a tennis analytics guy. He um, was one of the first ones to like popularize the rally length statistics. Basically he's, you know, he got really into counting how long the rallies were and then quote unquote discovered that, um, that you know, seventy percent of rallies are less than four shots, um, and twenty percent are less than eight or whatever it is, um, yeah. and ten percent are longer than that. He wasn't the first one to do it. I mean, there's studies going back to the eighties that that mm-hmm. that have these have these stats. But he certainly was the first one to popularize it um, and started doing some analytics. I don't quite know how how he he rose up the ranks, so to speak, but he eventually ended up working for for uh, for Djokovic for a while as his like analyst and. Certainly, um, if he hadn't made a name for himself by then, then he did after that. Um, and so he's worked with a handful of, uh, or more than a handful of, of pro players and still yeah. writes articles and does some analysis and stuff. Yeah, well done. Um, I think I'm pretty confident he was working with Dustin Brown when Dustin Brown upset Rafa at uh, Wimbledon. Like, I think that was, he was That's in the correct. for that, which yeah. I think le- led to some other things. But yeah, well said. So as you mentioned, I guess Craig, Craig O'Shaughnessy's big thing is sort of the, the importance of the first four shots as it pertains to coaching and development. Um, 
before I go on a rant, do you have any general thoughts about the whole first four shot stuff? I mean, I got tons of thoughts. The only thing I'll say is I'm generally un uncomfortable, um, uh, you know, putting words in people's mouths because I think Craig has certainly, pardon me, I think he's certainly updated and changed his um, viewpoints over the years. Um, so, uh, you know, I used to be, uh, I can only be critical of certain interpre interpretations of his stats because I don't know what he preaches these days. So I don't want to, uh, yep. I don't want to, I don't want to, attempt to 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 Fair. put words in his mouth but i've i've been critical in the past of the interpretations of those sorts of stats of people who decide that all we're going to ever work on is first four shots and you should never do rallying uh more than four shots and you should only work on serving plus one and all that stuff yeah i've i've written about that before i think it's silly yeah okay 100 so we're on the same page here um and my my big issue with i guess the way these stats are broken down is zero to four shots doesn't make any sense to me and the next brackets kind of makes sense. The next brackets do, but I really believe that if you're going to break down statistics like this, you have to have the first category is how many points are over in one shot. Period. That's mm -hmm. it. And the secondary category could be okay. Yeah, how many points are over in two, three, or four shots? Um, yeah. And then goes goes in the regular ones. Um, for this whole main reason that I think, I think it's been statistically proven, and you and I had a little bit of a chat about this um, via the Instagrams, but. A vast majority of points in tennis at all, all levels of tennis, and in, in particular high-level tennis, are over within one shot. Well, not the vast majority. That's the wrong well, the word majority. to use. A lot of points are over in the first four shot. In the in the in, not on the first, first four, shot. like with one yeah. with, with um, serve, right? Yeah, but it's not more than fifty percent. Okay, but even if it's you take those first four shots, even if it's twenty-five. Oh, the, sorry. The, oh, sorry. The vast majority of the first four shots points. No, no, no. So of the first four shots the highest percentage of the first four shots um, where points are over is the first shot. Oh, yeah, they're 100%. Sorry, I thought you meant okay. the vast no, no. majority of all points are Pardon finishing me, no. on the first I, shot. No, no, yeah, well, you're good. I mean, the majority of all points, regardless of the length, it's, it's always going to be one, right? So so either yeah. way that breaks down. That's um, And the reason I have an issue with this is because if that is true, which it, it is true that most points in tennis are over after just the serve, um, that drastically influences that the first four shots, that 70% of all points in tennis are over within the first four shots. And really, if you think of this as a coach, it's like, well, you, you, you got to look at how many points are over within one shot. And let's say that's, I don't know, 25 to 30% of the points. I'm sure there's actual data on this somewhere. So this is slightly anecdotal, but I'm, I'm not far off. And that would mean then in, in some aspect that um, shots two, three, and four, some somewhere around make up 40% of the points. And then 35 to 40 percent of the points uh, and then so on and so forth. And the only reason I, I outline this is because I think, again, those stats are misleading. Where the most important thing we should do as coaches is tra train the serve, period, the serve and return, period, but specifically the serve. And then secondly, past that, we now start to look at the two to four shot data is very, very similar between the five to eight shot data and the eight plus data. So I, I just I find it really interesting that he's sort of. um. I wouldn't say made his career because he's certainly more than, than just his data, but in a sense, he, he's made his career on this concept that the first four shots are the most important, which I think is entirely misleading because the first shot is the most important, and then they're all pretty equal statistically after that. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a really good observation, and it'd be interesting to see. I mean, I have some data on like that we should you know I shared with you some vague or 
generalized data on like point setting on the first shot, but then I don't have the comparison from two to four and 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 five to eight and to see the difference. Um, there is some data out there on tennisabstract.com. I want to find, I'll have to find it at some point, but there was somewhere on there you can find for each individual player. Um, they had a term for it, but it was a way of um, seeing, you could see how many, what percentage of, uh, for how long after the serve they retained an advantage. So it was kind of a way of seeing. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so they could see like after, if if the point has gone on eight shots after their serve, they win 50% of the points. So their serve has like no advantage. At, they've mm-hmm. lost the advent, the edge they had by serving by the yeah. eighth shot. And then for some players, it's by the sixth shot. And for some players, it's by, I'm making those numbers up, but it was something like right, that. Right. Yeah, so you could yeah. kind of see over time, like as the point grows longer, you, you, in theoretically, you're, you were losing the edge you had. Um, and so that would give us at least a little bit of insight, I think. Um, but it doesn't really tell the whole story, but no, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, I mean, that was, um, you know, once again, self self promotion, but zacholine.com slash blog. If anyone wants to check out, there's an article back there from a couple of years ago. Um, articles maybe too strong of a word. There's a post up there from a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um about stats. I think we plugged it in another episode of the of the podcast, actually, but about the stats. And and I'm I don't remember what I wrote, but I'm almost positive one of the takeaways was yeah, focus a ton on serve and return. But mm-hmm. otherwise, um, you know, it's focusing explicitly on the first four shots, I think is silly. You Because also, you know, what, what goes on in those first four shots can be offense, can be defense, and sometimes can be rally. And mm-hmm. there's plenty of different ways to work on those things without tying them into what happens in the first four shots. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I completely agree, but I think it also depends on what you're, you know, I do think, you want to do a really good job with that first ball. <laughs> you know, yeah, it is it is the start of the point. And if you start poorly, you will end the point poorly. Yep. Um, so I think you do need to do a really good job with that first ball. But is the only way to train that to do serve and plus one stuff? No. And yep. are there long rallies in tennis? Yes. Do you need to be able mm-hmm. to grind out long rallies? Yes. Yep. Um, it happens. It happens more than you think. 100%. Yeah. Um. So my, my two other thoughts that I'll add to this is I think sometimes we look at that data from Craig or other sort of shot data and it's like it appears to be mind-blowing that it's more common that the point ends earlier as opposed to later. But if you really break it down, it's like, isn't that the most obvious thing in the world? Like, isn't the most obvious thing in the world that most points in tennis are over within one shot? And secondly, two shots. And after that, three shots. Like, it why wouldn't that be the case? And that's not, I'm not necessarily looking for, for a comment uh, on your end on that, but it's just, I just find that interesting. If you really, if you really think about that, like, of course, it's not going to be like X amount of percentage points are over in one shot, but then all the other points last like eight rallies, you know, that just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, but the last thing that I'll bring up, and I'm curious your thoughts on this in pertaining to the first four shots. Um, I think as we train it as well, we have to be really aware as coaches of like, Within the first four shots of the point at high levels, um, what are the phases of play as you outlined that somebody might be in? And then generally in the first four shots at high levels, uh, what height are players usually receiving balls at in that situation? Um, and then trying to get a ton of volume to recreate that situation as much as you can. And I say that to say, I might have mentioned before, but in the... Oh, actually, you, I was there with you. In the finals of Nationals 
the indoor finals of nationals, I think it was 20. Yeah, it would have been indoor nationals 2019. Gabriel Diallo beat Marcos Takusic in the final. And I was just charting the first four shots sitting next to you and Tyler Prescott. Um, and I just wanted to see, like, on average, what height did the players receive the ball at? And so, obviously, it's like Gab and Marco play very aggressively. They both have big serves on an indoor hard court. So, unsurprisingly, or, you know what, I shouldn't say that because it was actually surprising to me. But the, the, re- the return of serve was almost always played on the rise because if they didn't play it on the rise, the ball never would have declined before the tarp. Mm-hmm. And right. So the return is on the rise. And then mm-hmm. both players are fairly aggressive. So their intent appeared to be most of the time outside of defending. Most of the time they were looking to take time away from the server, which led to them sending a ball that was fairly aggressive with speed. And this led to the the server not always being able to recover back to a, a situation that would allow allowed them to have time. So what happened is the returner would send the ball on the rise that the server after having served would have to play on the rise. And then after those first two shots, it then became a little bit more blurred between like, is the player playing on the rise at the peak or on the decline? And this is when game style started to come into it a little bit more, but I thought it was really, really interesting that like almost all of the time, the return and the server's first shot were almost always played early because they had to be. Um, and I only outline that to say, like, it's really, really important to train the first four shots. And as coaches, I was really understanding that at high levels and depending on where you're playing and what the conditions are and how big the court is and a bunch of other things, it's very, very common for those first two shots to have to be played early and have to be played almost with adaptive technique. Um, yeah. Yeah, cer- I mean, certainly very common, but you can't ignore the fact that, like, Medvedev on clay, he's not hitting any returns on the rise. Well, but, I mean, this, is the, but this is the difference is like, how many courts in Sweden have the amount of space behind <laughs> the baseline that, that like uh, Rome has, you know? Yeah, yeah 100%, 100%. So, I mean, if, yeah, if the argument is they need to be able to do this, then the answer is yes. Um, I'm just pointing out that it's not going to happen all the time. No, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and but, but I didn't mean uh, to sound combative in that, that last part. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're, no, you're good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's very valid. Like, yeah, the first four shots is, is uh, so much can happen. Of course, there are mm-hmm. some trends, but so much can happen, not just in terms of phase of play, but as you outlined, in terms of rise, peak, fall, in terms of hitting high, hitting low, in terms of hitting out of the middle, in the middle, lots of different things can happen. Um, if you're just sitting there and going, okay, let's just, okay, hit first four shots and then stop. Um you know, it's, of course you can do that, but as a main way of practicing, it's not, you have to really break it down into what exactly, what situation exactly are you looking at um, inside yeah. of the first four shots? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Speaking of Gab, he's playing, uh, playing French open qualities as we speak at the time of recording, he's down a set of break, which is not great. So not too bad. Too bad. Yeah. But yeah. you never know. Well, he really, yeah. Uh, Kentucky could have used him this year, man. I'll play that much, but no, good oh, run really? for them. What are they quartered? Yeah, I think they quartered, so pretty good. But how did uh, Josh do? How's he doing? Pretty good. Yeah, I think pretty good. I think he. I'm not sure if he. Lo- I think he won his matches in most of the tournament. So he's playing um, individual NCAA's right now, and he. I think he won last night at like 1 a.m. or something in Florida. So he's. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But uh, yeah, long one. Long one. Good so stuff. That's it. What's next for you, Zach? What's next? 
Um, I will uh, be off to French Open Juniors next week, which is very nice. Great. Very fun. And then um, after that, we'll see. But that's what's uh, next on the horizon. Perfect. Well, make sure that you only train your players to play with very, very straight past the racket and only train the first four shots (laughs) leading up to it. That's That's the plan. Take everything on the rise, too. 100%. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No, no, no! You don't understand. My friend Al Miller told me to do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't care what Rafa does. Al yeah. Miller told me to. Rafa's a chump. Yeah. Why That's would I tell you to do something that Rafa does? He's not even playing in the French Open this year. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. What's next for you? Not much, man. Just grinding. Just grinding. Nothing, no, nothing crazy exciting. like French Open. I'm not going to follow that. Like, what am I doing after French Open? I'm going to watch Provincials. Act. Jeez. We can't all live in this this magical fantasy land of junior grand slams, mate. But... Provincials in May? No, leading up to provincials. So we got another. Ah, okay. Selections so now. Yeah, yeah, selections nice. and stuff. So that's Good it. Good stuff. Yep. Love it. All right, you get off to whatever more important things you said you had to do. All right, sounds good, man. Well, all the best. That was a great one. Bye. <laughs> you got there before I could. Love it. Yeah. <laughs>